0: Well, if you're here last week, um, you probably remember me saying at the beginning that when I selected 1 Peter 5 uh, to bring to you on these two Sunday evenings, I did not know that Pastor Farrell was going to be preaching Revelation 2 last Sunday morning. I'm going to reiterate that again. I didn't know he was going to be in Revelation 2 again this morning, preaching the message to the compromising church, uh, because uh, our passage tonight, the second half of 1 Peter 5, has a message for the suffering church, and it is to stand firm in biblical conviction. So we're going to see some interesting uh, thematic parallels again tonight, so I'm excited about that. We have hardship coming our way. Some of us already have experienced it. It's already going on. We talked about it uh, last week. We mentioned just kind of the seedlings of, of, of persecution most of us aren't, you know, winding up in prison, you know, because of our faith or facing the sword because of our faith like these suffering believers were in 1st Peter's context, but the seedlings of persecution uh, are certainly seen today. I was I was reminded of a story out of Arizona last year and I may have I may have shared this with you last year when I was I, I, I don't remember if I shared it with you or with the youth group. I shared it with somebody, so if you heard it already, you're going to hear it again, because I, I can't get this uh, this this story really out of my out of my head. A school district uh, in Arizona last year in, in March, I read, ended their contract with Arizona Christian University and will no longer allow student teacher candidates from that university to come into their district uh, for their classroom experience. When the school board made that decision for no other reason than these students profess the name of Christ. Now, I don't know much about Arizona Christian University. I know they basically affirm the fundamentals of the faith. They're not the church, but you know the church sends their young people there to be trained. Um, and one of the school board members said after this this decision was made and is on the record saying this quote, he said, I just don't believe they belong in schools. I would never want my son to be shamed by a teacher who believed a certain way and is at a school that demands that they teach through their biblical lens, end quote. That is a quote on the record from a school board member. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? That's, that's a little more than a, than a seedling of persecution. And it's the very thing that Peter has in mind when he's instructing these Christians of the diaspora. We need to be prepared for this. This final section of 1 Peter that that we parachuted into last week has has final implications in light of Peter's doctrine on Christian suffering. And as as mentioned last week, the first of the final implications was to be expectant for suffering at the end of chapter 4. And last week, we actually examined the first seven verses of 1 Peter 5. We examined attitudes that we should strive for during suffering, heart postures we need to, to cultivate when this hardship comes knocking at our door. And these are cultivated because of in the context of good shepherding. Their, their, their context is the church. They're cultivated inside of the church. What does the church need to look like on the inside when this persecution arrives? And we were exhorted by the text to, to cultivate true humility horizontally with others and then vertically with, with God and, and and this leads to, to trust in his good and sovereign purposes, rest in his mighty hand, casting all your cares upon him because he cares for you. We need to think and live rightly. If we're going to survive the onslaught of hardship, the world hurls our way because we bear the name of Christ. Thinking rightly is not what the world is concerned with, is it? The world would tell you, you know, just turn your mind off, be distracted, be distracted, from your problems. Christian would, would tell us, scripture would tell us, to turn on our minds and keep them engaged. In counter to what the world would say, that the spirit of Western society, our society right now, is one of anti-intellectualism. Turn off your mind, maybe listen to the experts, because they're the gatekeepers of what's actually true, the world says. Even the church, in the past hundred years, I would say, has allowed itself to be overtaken with this kind of New Age thinking. And it is a New Age type of philosophy, and it's, and it's why many in the church are far more consumed with, with the pursuit of mystical experiences rather than rational truth from the Bible that, that shapes your mind and character. And that type of New Ageism really reduces God to just this kind of transcendent and detached being that's reachable only through certain experiences or feelings at the altar or, rather than through the truth. The Bible in that kind of view is not viewed as the inspired word of God, and it's not seen as authoritative for life, but rather your experiences are the most authoritative thing. And if that's your life's habit of approaching the faith, of approaching scripture, of approaching God, then I wouldn't be shocked in the slightest when biblical moral absolutes and conviction in the truth eventually disappear and the world's ways prevail in your life. And before long, in that habit, you have a former church person standing in a deconstructed pile of ash that used to be a professed faith. And they choose instead to have kind of a completely incoherent worldview, just following the next ideological or philosophical fad and maybe thinking they're really spiritual still. The scripture tonight is going to call that being devoured by your adversary, the devil. And we'll see also that suffering kind of makes us vulnerable to his schemes. And so Peter gives us warnings, final warnings to the church in light of this. Now, we can make a mistake, too, by swinging the pendulum too far the other direction and making the faith just about intellectualism. Right thinking is not just intellectually processing information. It includes, of course, attitudes, heart postures, motives that we saw last week that lead you to stand in conviction. The main implication tonight has to do with action. Last week were heart postures. This week is action, namely standing firm in biblical conviction. And Peter is going to exhort this quality twice, very explicitly, in the last text of of 1 Peter that we're going to look at. Let's go ahead and read the passage, 1 Peter 5. I probably should have asked you to turn there already. 1 Peter 5 is our passage. We're going to look at the final seven verses. 1 Peter 5, starting in verse 8. Peter says, Be of sober spirit, be beyond the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking anyone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Through Sylvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. So we're going to look at tonight two grounding positions when preparing for hardship. Two grounding positions when preparing for hardship. There are actually six in the text, but I do think the text allows us to quantify them into two kind of more umbrella concepts. And if you know me, you know, I like a more succinct outline. So we're going to go with two grounding positions uh, when preparing for hardship. And here are the grounding positions. Stand with fortitude and then stand with faithfulness. Stand with fortitude and stand with faithfulness. We'll begin with the first position, stand with fortitude. And we'll, we'll spend most of our time tonight in this, in this first position. Stand with fortitude. The reason Peter has called the church to those heart postures that we examined last week in verses one through seven is actually revealed in verse eight. The reason is that believers face real spiritual opposition. There is an enemy out there. That is in opposition to the church. Here in verse 8, Peter calls the church to be sober-minded and vigilant. Be sober-minded and vigilant. Verse 8, be of sober spirit. Some of your Bibles might say, be of sober mind or be sober-minded. This command calls for a basic element of godly thinking. On a physical level, sober means Well, the opposite of intoxicated, doesn't it? Intoxication means that you are inebriated, meaning you are not really in control of yourself. You're you're dulled. You're, You're under the control of a substance. You're under its influence. You ever been around a drunken person? Not too pleasant, is it? A drunken person acts ridiculous, not in control, unserious, Under the influence of whatever substance they've consumed, they have no self-control of themselves. They they lack a a seriousness. Some of your Bibles might say, be serious here. I kind of like that rendering, actually, for this, because that's a piece of this pie. Seriousness is a piece of this pie. And you get that sense when you take these two commands together in verse 8. And they are together in the text. The text doesn't separate these two. That's why I paired them together in the outline. They very much go in tandem. Be sober-minded and be vigilant. Peter is saying to exercise a soberness, a self-control almost, a seriousness in your, in your thinking. Don't, don't become inebriated by the allurements of the world. Don't be under the influence of, of temptations or ideologies or philosophies that, that dull you to the schemes of this enemy he's about to tell us about kind of reminds me of those drip-drop steps of compromise from this morning. You want to guard against that? Well, be sober-minded, vigilant. Temptation, sin, it intoxicates people. Be sober-minded when it comes to your fleshly desires. Peter's already said this back in chapter 2, verse 11. He says, Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and temporary residents to abstain from fleshly desires that wage war against you. Intoxication to sin leads to an unseriousness in life, doesn't it? Not taking seriously things you should take seriously, like sin and its influence over you. We we live in an unserious age, frankly, filled with unserious people. People inebriated to the realities around them. There are professing Christians even everywhere, seemingly inebriated by the allurements of the world. So Peter says, have a soberness in your spirit. Don't become inebriated by the allurements of the world. Also be vigilant, have a vigilance about you. Verse eight, be on the alert, he says, in tandem with this other command. Peter's telling us to be watchful to stay awake, literally, be awake. We cannot become asleep or indifferent to the reality of this kind of spiritual opposition. This reality calls for for vigilance. And here's why in verse 8. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking anyone to devour. Peter identifies Satan as your adversary, the devil. Notice he says, your adversary, not the adversary. He's your adversary, church. This makes it personal. Satan is not only the enemy of God in Christ, but he's the opponent of all of God's people. He's the vicious, relentless enemy of the church. And he's described like a a predator, like a lion, looking for anyone he can devour. He hunts to kill. His objective is not to wound or to scare, but to destroy. The word devour here, it means to gulp down wholly, swallow something whole. You know, Peter wouldn't have seen, you know, cuddly lions in the zoo like we do. But he may have seen those cuddly lions devouring Christians for the entertainment of the Romans. Starving lions were used as a method of execution. These lions were starved on purpose to make them particularly vicious, to ensure you would be devoured, to ensure that they would attack you when they see you, because you're their meal. The devil is likened to these these vicious predators, and he devours those who are inebriated by sin or the world, those who are not alert. Pastor Farrell said, "I, I think recently, maybe it was last Sunday morning, Something along the lines of, the devil would love to convince you he's not real. I'd like to add on to that. If he can't convince you he's not real, he'd like to convince you he's not a serious threat. He'd like to convince you he's that cartoon character, a silly cartoon character that you shouldn't be concerned about. He's actually not a a prowling, starving lion. He's just to be giggled at, to to make jokes about. I would submit to you that's a scheme. Another current event, just just to illustrate this a little bit. You may have heard this recently because it just happened. In early December of last year, I read a a local Satanist chapter in Des Moines, Iowa, erected this altar with a graven image of, of the devil on it in the state capitol building. Now, Make no mistake, this was done to make a mockery of the one true and living God during Christmas to mock Christians. It's what they said. They themselves have stated they don't believe in the reality of the devil. Now, what was shocking to me when I read this was, was not that you know, these, these pagan folks did this pagan thing. What was more shocking to me was the response from several kind of big names in evangelicalism, big names that have written articles and have spoken at pretty big conferences. That's what shocked me. You know, the most common take that I heard or read from several of these mainstream evangelical leaders was basically giggling, chuckling, telling you to roll your eyes, Telling their listeners and readers that something like this, this doesn't need to be taken seriously because those that did it are just silly people and they're just poking fun. They're, you know, they're just poking at Christians. My generation and younger would call them trolls. They're just trolling you. Don't be bothered by people trolling you. Might I submit? That's a very dangerous perspective to have. Not only does that kind of validate what they did, but it dulls you to this reality Peter's trying to warn us about. I mean, I was thinking when reading some of these articles, do you not know first Peter five? Have you not read it? Is it absent from your Bible? Peter's trying to warn us of a very real spiritual opposition and enemy out there. That is not silly. Now, the people who did this might be silly. They might just be trolls. They might be unserious people not knowing what they're doing, really. But the enemy behind them is dead serious. He's like a raving, rabid predator salivating at his next prey. He would love for you to think he's just silly. For you to be asleep. For you to be inebriated by some form of worldliness remember the big governing context of first peter christian suffering that's what peter has in view when he's giving these warnings i mean hurting suffering christians perhaps those who have lost something because of their faith can be vulnerable to being ensnared god knows this the scripture knows this and he and he gives us help he tells us don't be asleep those who suffer to, to this reality of spiritual opposition because there is an enemy who is looking to ensnare you, particularly during your suffering. First Peter's not painting the devil as the one who is in a sovereign position over hardship. So, some in- interpret this text like that. I think it's a very wrong interpretation of this verse. I mean, the one who is sovereign is the God of all grace. This, this predator, this enemy Peter describes is, is on a leash, restricted by the mighty hand of God and cannot take one step further than God himself permits. He is not the sovereign one over Christian suffering. Rather, First Peter paints him as the, the stalking, starving lion hiding behind the bush back there, watching you as you suffer. And if you get entangled in one of his schemes that he's laid out, that's when he pounces. That's when he devours. Peter is calling the church really to be awake to this. This is spiritual opposition. Your ultimate enemy is not the mockers that persecute you. There's a puppet master who's behind it all and he hates the church. The devil is the administrator of the world system, the prince of the power of the air. It's his system. It's his temptation enterprise, his school of anti-God ideology. He set it up. And he wants to see believers, who are suffering in particular, get tangled up in some part of it. Then he'll pounce. He wants you to fail and falter. He wants your family to fail and falter. He wants you to be asleep, dads who are the head of your household. If you're a Christian, he wants you devoured, he wants you destroyed. Now, praise the Lord, he can't do that. He can't pluck anyone out of the hand of God. He can't undo the work that Christ has done in you and for you. we'll see that in a few verses. So needn't worry about that. The devil can do nothing to affect your standing in the Lord, but he wants to see some sin in some way inebriate you, overtake you, if you're not sober-minded or awake. He wants to see you estranged from God from this morning. He has lots of schemes, lots of ways to devour. And frankly, he doesn't care which one it is. When I preached this passage to the youth last year, I mentioned to them at this point, I said some of you might be playing around with ideologies on TikTok or Instagram, and you need to wake up to the reality behind those ideologies. But the devil doesn't need you to engage in, you know, what we see is kind of the massive reality denying things and sins. He'd love for you to, but he's content in snaring you in some other way, Anyway. He doesn't care as long as you are inebriated by sin. He doesn't care what it is as long as you're inebriated, you're asleep, your thinking is twisted and messed up to where you can't think and reason and respond rightly, have a depraved mind, as Romans 1 says, oh, he'll take it, as long as you stay asleep. And it is subtle, creeping into your everyday contents, relationships, anti-God, anti-Scripture little things. Inserted into the everyday things that you do and the places you go and maybe some of the people that you're with and the things you watch and listen to. Wake up, church. Good-sounding philosophies, for example, that make sin seems like it affirms human rights or even saves people's lives. That's the jargon you hear nowadays, isn't it? Scripture's telling us tonight, be sober-minded. Be awake to this. The enemy is prowling around looking for anyone he can devour, and you'll be devoured if you aren't vigilant. The Apostle Paul gives this same about identical exhortation as well. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 6, he says, So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. See the similar language there from 1 Peter 5? Paul adds kind of a, another angle to the implication. Because Christians are in the light, we ought to not be in the dark regarding spiritual matters. You know, becoming a father of three children, has made me realize more than ever that I cannot be an ostrich with my head in the dirt, completely unaware of how the world wants to get my children. Too many of us are ostriches with our head in the dirt. We need to wake up. We need to wake up. There's a wicked adversary seeking any prey he can devour. Too many Christians today are indifferent to this spiritual reality around them. Paul here in 1 Thessalonians 5 is telling believers to live alert, balanced, godly lives under the control of the truth. Believers aren't to live like the sleeping, darkened people that will be jolted out of their coma by the day of the Lord, which is the context of Paul's words here in 1 Thessalonians 5. This is a picture of alertness and proper equipping. Faith is in a... Essential protection against this. It's, it's an unwavering belief in God's word that protects us from the enemy's attacks. Looking at this kind of negatively, unbelief characterizes all sin. The enemy wants you in a state of unbelief, unbelief in some way. You may not be tempted to deny the Trinity, but you might be tempted to deny God's goodness. You may not be tempted to deny the virgin birth but you might be tempted to deny your own personal depravity. He he just wants to see yourself distancing yourself from God. Jesus tells us in Matthew 26 to keep watching and praying that you might not enter into temptation. Peter's first line of defense for believers who are suffering is to be sober-minded and be alert. MacArthur says here, if, if Satan so easily deceived Eve in Eden's perfect environment, how much more are redeemed sinners living in a sinful fallen world susceptible to Satan's craftiness and deception? So wake up. It's helpful. Now let's be careful here. Let's be biblical. Contrary to some teaching you might hear on, you know, Christian TV or even in the evangelical world, Scripture nowhere tells believers to attack or confront the devil or demons with prayers or formulas or trinkets. We are not the apostles. But we are not Christ. We don't have that kind of authority, and we're never told to try to wield it. Here's what Scripture does tell us. This enemy's already been defeated by Christ. And through the word of God, believed and obeyed, we overcome him as well. You'll be victorious if you're alert for the world's influence. Being alert allows you to assess potential temptations and and flee from them. If you're in Christ, you don't need to fear, but you do need to be sober-minded and vigilant. Now, as important as these things are, that's not the end goal. Being awake and aware and sober-minded doesn't help us by themselves to stand with fortitude. There's something else we need. Peter tells us what it is in verse 9, and it is to be firm in biblical conviction. Verse 9, But resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Resist him and be firm in the faith, are connected to each other. They're used in conjunction with one another and shouldn't be pried apart. You resist the devil by being firm in your faith. Resist here means to take a stand. Be firm means that stand is solid. It's unmoving. It's with fortitude. What are you to take a fortified stand in? You're to be firm in your Faith. Faith here is kind of a broad concept. Peter's talking about everything that constitutes your faith as a believer. We need a convictional stand in the truth that we know and believe, an unmoving position in it. What Peter's not talking about when he says faith is some kind of feeling or emotion you feel when you think about the truth. You don't resist the devil and be firm in your feelings because those things are subjective, fickle, and change, and are easily influenced. That would be building your house upon the sand. You need to build your house upon the rock, Jesus says. Be firm in the in faith. What is the faith? There's another similar passage, again, from, from Paul's writings, and it's in Ephesians 4. Paul gives a bit of a different illustration than the devouring predator. Predator. Paul uses the illustration of a a deadly storm and what anchors you in it. Ephesians 4.13 Until we all attain unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. The faith is the whole body of truth revealed in Scripture. These are very similar passages, just described in kind of a different way. These are both calls to know and believe, and in Ephesians 4, be unified under sound doctrine. Stand firm in it. Be anchored in it in the storm. Be convinced of its truthfulness. Be discerning and distinguishing truth from error. Jude calls it the once-for-all faith, which is the inscripturated revelation of God and you stand solidly on it and this strong stand really interesting is is a result of an attitude of submission toward the qualified shepherds in the church who are leading us and shepherding us in the scripture as Paul indicates here that's that's what came before this it's what Peter indicated last time in the first part of first Peter 5 that's in view in both of these texts You need to know God's word. Take your stand in it so that you won't be carried about by every wind of doctrine, so so that you won't be devoured by your adversary, the devil. Unity in the faith is what we need as a body. Not more opinions of the faith. Unity in the faith. Biblical conviction is what we need. There's only one place we're going to stand if we're going to resist him. The most simplified way uh, that I could come up with to quantify this was this. Know where God's word stands and stand there. Know where the Lord Jesus stands and stand there. The unchanging God of truth is where you take your stand. The serpent deceived when he led Eve to start contemplating, did God really say? It's the same tactic, just in a different way kind of formula version, did God really say the deceiver and this deception is resisted only by faithful belief and obedience to biblical truth, fidelity to the truth. You need biblical conviction. This battle is a spiritual one. It's spiritual opposition and it's fought through spiritual means. The means by which Peter's telling us about the same means that again, Paul speaks of This time in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. We're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. When Paul talks about speculations and lofty things, raised up against the knowledge of God, he's referring to, frankly, satanic, anti-God ideologies, theories, philosophies of secularism or or other religions, other systems of thought that are raised up against God. He's talking about anti-Christian, anti-biblical worldviews that have people captive as if they're imprisoned in a stronghold, as he says here. And you cannot counter those fortresses with human ingenuity or methods of secular rationalism. You can only counter that with biblical truth, taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Only when you pursue the mind of Christ are you rescued from these ways of thinking. This is why you come armed with the gospel. and Take your stand in Scripture. And it's not only for defense to protect yourself from being swept into these anti-God captivities, but it's also how you go on offense to to help free those who are held captive by them. The words of Christ are a stumbling block to some, Peter says in 1 Peter 1, but to others, they are the life-giving words of freedom that the Holy Spirit uses to break their chains and bring them to the Lord Jesus Christ. Scripture is not only your shield, but it's it's your sword. So stand firm in in biblical conviction. Peter concludes verse 9 with with just a word of assurance to these Christians as they're vigilant and courageous in the midst of everything they face. He reminds them they're not alone. These are similar experiences that Christians everywhere face. Every segment of the Christian community has experienced or will experience suffering. And remember, God allows suffering to accomplish his perfect good in the lives of his people. You you need the church. You need these other suffering Christians in your life. You need to be around those who can empathize and sympathize with your struggles. God never intended the Christian life to be lived alone. Your life is not just you and God at a coffee shop. You need God's people. God's grace is, is found here. It's a gift, remember, from last week. I mean, when times get hard, that's that's when you need the church the most. That's when you're the most vulnerable. So don't pull away if you're struggling in some way, especially if hardship is brought on you because of your faith. Now, Peter's not done, as you notice. There's something else we need to stand with fortitude, and it's hope. He calls us to remember our hope. Verse 10, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. These verses are filled with the hope of a believer. Hope provides believers with a settled confidence. This biblical hope is is not confidently like wishing for an unsure result. It's not like I was last Tuesday during that monsoon rainstorm as I'm watching almost three inches of rain dump on my house. I'm thinking, I hope my basement doesn't flood. I was optimistic, but not sure. The hope that scripture talks about is not a nebulous optimism. In the face of something unsure. No. This hope is in reality. That has actually already happened. Our hope is in the God of all grace. Do you believe that you serve a sovereign God that's filled with grace? Christ is all, already won. He's gone to prepare a place for you, he's, he's at the right hand of the Father right now, which is a position of victory. And if you're in him, he's your advocate. You'll be raised just like he was raised. God's spirit rests on you if you're found redeemed in him. Peter says the God of all grace has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Our hope is not optimism in an unsure future, but our hope is an unchangeable reality. Guaranteed, sealed in the spirit, as Paul says. He has called you to his eternal glory. But not only this, if that's not enough, Peter gives a series of actions the God of all grace will do because of what he has accomplished. He will perfect you, confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you, Peter says in verse 11. This is interesting because Peter uses a series of four almost identical verbs. They're not identical, but they're remarkably similar in meaning. And we might not be able to see this exactly in our English Bibles, but these four verbs grow gradually in their intensity almost. Some call this rhetorical crescendo. Peter's referring to the complete act of God at the consummation of all things. First, he says, he himself will perfect you. This carries the sense of God putting all things right. In the time and place of eternal glory that he's called you to, there won't be suffering for the faith. God will eliminate this at its source. It will all be put right. You'll be perfected. Second, he says, God himself will confirm you, carrying the sense of causing you to become more firm and more unmovable in your faith, in your conviction. Certainly when Christ returns, our faith will become sight, but in the meantime, God's grace enables us to remain firm and unchanging in our faith. This is why Peter could say way back in chapter 1, verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible. That's only possible because he himself gives you grace. Third, Peter says he himself will strengthen you. This is a a quite literal empowerment. I mean, in, in a society that, essentially gets away with persecuting Christians and evildoer mobs applaud it, which was the society that Peter's readers were in, those Christians are are not in the position of empowerment, are they? One commentator I read stated on this verb that in a society like that, Christians are in an earthly temporal position of weakness, but that suffering is just for a little while, as Peter says, When Christ is revealed as the true Lord of the earth, when he returns, the believer's faith will be vindicated in the face of all. And at that time, Christians will be the empowered people. And if that's not enough for hope, lastly, Peter says God will establish you. Some of your Bibles might say he will secure you. I think that's that's a really helpful way to say that. He himself will secure you or keep you secured. He is the secure foundation on which our faith is built. The faith we are to take a stand in, he's the foundation of it. I think this is referring back to the spiritual house metaphor Peter used in chapter 2, right here in chapter 2, verse verse 5. You as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ for this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay, as, lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. God has built a house. The Creator is building a structure. And you, as you are redeemed, are the stones being put into it. You are the bricks in the wall and the cornerstone, the piece of the structure that secures the whole thing is Christ. This metaphorical house, the creator himself has built and is building is not going to be torn down because he's the one who keeps it secured. Jesus says in John 10, I give eternal life to them and they will never perish And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. All of this because the dominion belongs to him. Peter says to him be dominion forever and ever. Verse 11. Peter warns us about an enemy, the devil, a real enemy, real fierce spiritual opposition be sober-minded, be alert and awake to that reality. But this enemy is powerless to take your hope. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Christ is the Lord. Whether your hardship comes from the authorities that you're, you're to submit to, or the hardship is brought upon you just by regular people who hate Christians, God is sovereign over them all. Dominion belongs to him. Every knee will bow. The end is already set in stone. Nothing can be done to change the purposes of the Father. So I think we have some hope, church. You can stand with fortitude. Second Corinthians 4, Therefore we do not lose heart, though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. This was the youth group's kind of memory verse passage when we went through 1 Peter. Maybe you should memorize it too, it might be helpful for you. This Second Corinthians 4 text isn't about trials and hardship, and difficulty. That's about hope. Hardship's just a little while, while we're here. And so, our hope isn't in what's here. Our hope is in what is eternal. The promise and power of the resurrection. Our hope is in the conquered grave. The God of all grace has called you to his eternal glory. If you need some fortitude, in this world, in this culture, then remember the hope you have. You can't stand firm in biblical conviction without biblical hope in what you're standing in. So stand with fortitude. One other position you need in the face of hardship, and that's faithfulness. Stand with faithfulness. The second position is that of of faithfulness. These final verses we'll cover a little more quickly. Peter's actually concluded his letter in verse 11. These final three verses are the final greeting where he addresses individuals, but we can glean from Peter's final words the the position of of faithfulness. He reiterates to be firm in biblical conviction, then he tells us to love one another in the church. You see faithfulness come in through the example of Sylvanus and the, the illustration of love. Again, be firm in biblical conviction. I'm not self-plagiarizing myself. This is just what's in the scripture. Verse 12, through Sylvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Sylvanus was essentially Peter's scribe. He highlights his faithfulness here. And he encourages his readers to be faithful as well to these words that have, that have been written. Sylvanus was a model of fidelity to the truth. Peter's telling the whole church ought to emulate that faithfulness too. He says, take your stand in it. It being the, the written letter, First Peter. This just simply reiterates what Peter said in verses 8 and 9 to drive the nail in one more time to the suffering church. Take your stand in the written word of God. Know where God's word stands and stand there. A lot of the time, we concern ourselves more with opinions rather than conviction, don't we? I think this, I think that when asked a question, I mean, just hear any politician talk. I mean, every time they're asked a question, they start with that. I think that. I I think this. It doesn't matter what I think, ultimately. If God has spoken, then that's our position. In the evangelical world today, there are too many opinions and not nearly enough conviction in the truth. I think this is why the evangelical church tends to waft around and is unclear on very important issues of doctrine and morality, and a lot of folks in those pews end up devoured because of it. But we have clarity on everything we need for life and godliness, don't we? We have God's very word, so know what it says and stand there. Be firm in biblical conviction. Also, Peter says, love one another in the church. This might seem a little odd, but you can't be faithful to the truth without loving your brothers and sisters in the church. First John mentions that numerous times. You're not the only living stone built in the house. There are other stones right next to you, and unity among those stones is necessary if standing firm in the faith is the goal. Love one another well, Peter says. Verse 13, the church in Babylon, also chosen, sends you greetings, as does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Some of you might be wondering, what's Babylon? I thought Babylon was in the Old Testament, in the book of Daniel. Well, it is. Babylon here is basically a code word used to describe Rome. Peter's using it here in this way as kind of a code word because he didn't want to endanger the church more. He he knew they were under the persecution of Rome. So he uses this code word to kind of guard the church from more persecution if the letter was intercepted. Peter closes the epistle not necessarily by commanding the attitude of love, but by illustrating it. Believers are to have love and affection for one another. He says, greet one another with a holy kiss, some of your Bibles might might say now he's not telling us to do that this particular action isn't commanded for all believers and all churches for, for all time this, this kiss of love this holy kiss was, was a customary sign of affection among believers in the earliest of the church age there was nothing weird about this for them It'd be weird for us Peter is only saying church love each other and show it love one another well i mean that's just the message of scripture isn't it colossians three fourteen. very simply above all put on love the perfect bond of unity one commentator i read said christian love is the adhesive of the church love is what keeps us together in unity Now, Christ is the cornerstone. He brings the church together. He builds the house. We're his body. We have unity with him, but we have to work at unity with each other at times, don't we? Christian love is that gentle bonding agent that keeps different people together. It's the glue of unity. Considering others and their interests as more important than yourself. Humility extended to others as you serve them in lowly ways, like we saw rather extensively last time. Being present and intentional in each other's lives, bearing one another's burdens. All these things constitute love in the church. Have brotherly and sisterly affection for one another because we're family. We're all adopted into the family of God and we sit at his table as as full members of the family. I tell the students in the youth group somewhat often, I tell them, look around at each other, look at each other. If you're a believer, if you've been called by him to his eternal glory in Christ, then these are the people you're going to be spending eternity with. We'll be with the Lord first and foremost. But we'll be with one another too. So shouldn't we prioritize gathering with one another? Shouldn't we prioritize one another in love? Peter says we need each other in the church, especially when hardship comes our way, and it will. You're going to face hardship. You're going to face attacks from those who hate God and hate the church. Some of you already have. You'll be confronted with anti-God ideologies and ways of living that demand you adhere to them. Some of you already have been confronted by those things. You know you need to stand with fortitude and faithfulness in light of that. There's no shortcut to possessing these these positions. There's no snap of the finger or formulaic prayer or vending machine transaction that just gives you fortitude and faithfulness. These positions are cultivated in our lives and in our mind and our attitude as we regularly and faithfully place ourselves under the preaching and shepherding of God's truth, studying God's word for yourself, practicing it in your life, obediently allowing God's word to change your heart and shape your character. Then and only then will you be like the man in Psalm 1 who stands strong like a tree planted by the stream. See, the Holy Spirit through God's word will shape your mind and character. You'll be under that influence or your flesh and the devil through the world will shape your mind and character. You'll be under that influence, one or the other. And one more reminder, the the enemy doesn't care how he devours you. He'll use anything. Gender and sexual ideology that Promises freedom, but only provides hopelessness and regret. The love and lust for money or materialism or experiences that promises satisfaction, but only gives you more emptiness, more discontent. Self-care culture on social media that puts your desires above all things, that promises personal happiness, but only enslaves you to yourself and isolates you. He doesn't care what it is because it's all from him anyway. He doesn't care. So take your stand in biblical conviction. Resist him. Be firm in the faith. Remember the hope found there. Stand with fortitude and faithfulness. Isn't it interesting that Peter's final commission to suffering believers is to take a stand in the truth? I find that interesting and really helpful. Scripture knows we are particularly vulnerable to Satan's schemes when we've suffered, especially unjustly. That's what's happened to these believers Peter's writing to of the diaspora. It's a warning and a reminder that there is a real dangerous enemy who prowls and schemes and seeks those to devour. And the way to resist him is to be firm in the truth. Remember the hope that you have. So helpful for me. I hope it's been a help to you too. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful again for your word. Thank you for revealing it to us. Thank you for giving us the commands that we need. Commands that aren't easy to obey, but ones that we need. Thank you for putting up guardrails for us in your word that we might be alert and sober-minded. Help us be alert and sober-minded. Help us to remember the hope that we have and to, and to take a stand in the truth and be convictional and faithful in Christ's name.